Luke chapter 18, if you'll turn there, our scripture reading was in chapter 17, the severe warning of being a stumbling block to these little ones. And in Luke chapter 18, I want you to turn there to verse 15. Luke chapter 18 and verse 15, and they brought unto him also infants, and that term is not just babies, we usually think of the word infant as those who are from birth to about two years old or something like that, but this word in the Greek is a broad range and it includes children, all right, that he would touch them, but when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Children in that generation were not considered important at all. They were uh, cast aside, kept in the background. They had no place in public, and they certainly, in the disciples' mind, the disciples were not being cruel here. They were acting only as the custom of that day to, to take these little ones away from the business at hand, hearing Jesus Christ teach and preach. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer, that old English word, allow little children to come unto me. I'm sure these words were very strange to the hearers of the audience of that day. They had no thought that children were to be even considered, let alone allowed to come and hear the words of Jesus Christ. Forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. And a certain ruler who must have heard this conversation, remember the context here, what Jesus has just said, what is going on, a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Our Lord is testing him. He's showing him the faultiness of his reasoning. Am I just a good teacher? If I'm a good teacher, I cannot save you. Jesus is pressing the, the points of his deity, that he indeed is the Son of God with power to save. He must clear that up. That must be clear in this man's mind that Jesus is the Savior, the only Savior. Thou knowest the commandments. He was a ruler. He was a leader in the Judaism. And so he did know he had been a, a, a steeped into the things of God from a, from a child. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. Our Lord is just giving a sprinkling here. He's not trying to exhaust all the commandments. And it is as if the young man interrupts him and says, All these things I have kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The man was covetous, and so the Lord decides to point him out on that matter and show him his covetous heart. He was not willing to part with anything, especially not all of it. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. As often people think they're in privileged categories because of their status or standing or income or their status in the church even, that they must have a pass or be treated differently. And he was very sorrowful for he was very rich. When Jesus saw that, he was very sorrowful. He said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye 
than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What a statement. And uh, just as it falls on our ears, is a very hard statement. It certainly did on the audience that Jesus was preaching to. And, when, and they that heard it said, who then can be saved? You've said don't pro- pro- forbid these little ones to come to you. That upset their thinking. And then on the other hand, this young man who was wealthy, well-dressed, uh, model of morality, you know, he was what everybody would point to as, as the epitome of what they thought righteousness was. And you're telling us he can't be saved. He's not saved and, and won't be saved because of his... Who, who can be saved? And he said... The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. It would be an impossibility for anyone to be saved had, did God not intervene and do the saving. It is a miracle. It must be a work of the Spirit. And then Peter said, and How slow are we to leave off works? How quick we are to point them out when pressed into a corner. Peter it says, lo, we have left all and followed thee. In other words, doesn't that count for something? What about us? Where do we stand in light of all that you've just taught? And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Well, may the Lord give us light as we study his word tonight. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is the very word of God, and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to it. We thank you for the children in our midst tonight and for these parents who are careful and uh, cautious to have their children under the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. How thankful we are that your word can minister to every single one, that it is supernatural. And we can trust you, Lord, to do your work, not only in our lives, but in the lives of those who are most precious to us, our precious, precious children. Lord, help us and give us wisdom in how to deal with them and how to give out the gospel in our, our, our work here, in our Sunday school work, and among our young people. We pray you'd help us tonight in Jesus' precious name. Our Lord commands us to go into all the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. This is a command that has been given by him and has not been rescinded. And what a responsibility that is. What a burden on the heart of the believer, the fact that there are those around us who are lost and apart from Christ will perish. This command of our Lord ought to be the business of every one of us, and daily we should be burdened about it and should be seeking the Lord as to how we can effectively witness and tell others about Him and live before them the gospel. We should try to influence the souls of those who are lost, those who are unsaved. And this great task should begin around our own breakfast table, our own dinner table, with our own children and grandchildren and those in our own household. Those born to us should have as their earliest memories our praying over them and asking the Lord to understand, help them to understand the gospel and to be saved. They should hear us early, talk to them about the gospel. They should hear about how we were saved. I I, I marvel sometimes that children have not heard their own parents' testimony and are not 
have not heard the converting work of the Lord in their life. I was raised in a church that where babies were brought and were christened, sprinkled. Uh, I have my certificate and my belongings of when I was christened. And then as the custom in that church was, about at the age of 12, they would enlist uh, children uh, at that age. I'm not sure why they chose the age of 12. That was the age they chose it. And they would go through uh, the pastor's class and uh, their various words to describe what would take place, their confirmation, confirming them in the gospel. And then they would introduce them to the church for membership uh, at, at about the age of 12. And that's just the way it was done. There was never really any, uh, although the, the work of Jesus Christ, I'm sure, was taught the facts of the Savior and his death on the cross, but uh, the guilt of sin, the work of regeneration, the work of the Savior on the heart was, was never, uh, to me at least, uh, understood or emphasized. And, and because of that, you had generation after generation of people who were religious in, in a church, in a church setting, but without any real understanding or knowledge of what salvation was or what the gospel was. But how different is, is that when we look in the scriptures and see what the Lord has told his people to do? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 6, These words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. The gospel is a part of the daily round of life for the believer and how we deal with things. And as we go through the business of life, the most influential evangelist in all the world ought to be parents and grandparents and those who have children. And yet the Bible gives its severest warnings to those who would lead children astray. In that scripture reading, where we heard this evening, uh, where Jesus said in Luke 17, 2, it were better for him, he gives that warning about uh, offenses, uh, stumbling blocks, it would be better for him that a millstone, have you ever seen a millstone, a big, huge stone where the mill was used to grind out the mill? It would be better for one of those to be tied around someone's neck where he hanged about his neck and cast into the sea, than that he should offend, uh, literally cause one of these little ones to stumble or to be scandalized or to be led astray from the truth that is in Christ. Now, this is sobering business, isn't it? When you think of our Lord's words, that those who lead children astray, we think of all those who abuse and misuse children in every kind of way, and, but this goes far beyond just that physical abuse which recalls, all of us recall at. But the abuse of leading children astray spiritually into everlasting damnation because of false teaching and handling the words of God deceitfully or not carefully. This is serious business. It is serious with every soul. But because of the impressionableness of children and uh, their moldability, if you will, we need to take a special heed. Take heed to yourselves, he says, and be, be careful. The Lord takes special interest in children. Do you know, I read recently, do you know what the number one killer of children under the age of five is in our nation? The number one, it is not leukemia. It is not disease 
or SIDS or any number of things. The number one killer of children in the United States under the age of five, and this statistic may be worldwide, but the number one killer of children is child abuse. And one-third of that number are six months old or less. Oh, how grave this is, how, how horrible it is when we think of the abuse of children. And at the same time, our Lord takes, of course, a special interest in children. We must be careful in our dealings with them. When, when parents do bring their children here and dedicate them to the Lord, which is different than a rite of a ceremonial rite of baptism where water is placed and the words baptism are used as if that child has somehow another is safe or saved or whatever the words may be used. We are joining with parents in praying that they will have the wisdom to lead them and guide their children in paths of righteousness and that we as a church family covenant with them to do the same, that we would dare not be a stumbling block to these little ones coming to the saving knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Take heed to yourselves, the Lord says, be careful. What are some of the pitfalls then of of this dual effort of go ye to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature and that parents should speak of the Lord and, and do all that they can to influence their children for Christ as much as humanly possible. Where is the balance then of that and becoming a stumbling block? What are some of the pitfalls, if you will, of, of children's work? And we firmly believe in working with children and teaching them of the Savior and using various means to do that, but we ought to be very careful here and I want us as a church family to analyze and look at what are some of the dangers here that we should be aware of. Sometimes, in an effort to help children comprehend the gospel in all of its full ramifications, what it means to be lost, what it means to be a sinner, who the Savior is, His deity, that He is the Son of God who's come to earth to save, what He did. What did that accomplish? Our Lord's sinless life, His work on the cross, His resurrection. The reality of hell. Uh, what, what is repentance and belief? These are deep subjects. And the temptation in dealing with children is to downplay them. Uh, the, the depravity that a child, all of us, are totally and hopelessly depraved. Or what sin is or the reality of hell, the, the danger is, or the substitutionary death of Christ as the only means of salvation is to oversimplify or to abbreviate the gospel message given in minimizing the demands of the gospel. And so as the question arises, how is a child saved? I would tell you the same way an adult is saved. Salvation is the same from, as a child at 6 or 16 or 66, children can indeed be saved. Please make no mistake about that. We rejoice. Did not our Lord say, allow the little children, to, don't stand in the way of children coming to me. Do all that you can to influence them and point them to the Savior. But we must remind ourselves that Jesus Christ alone is mighty to save. And He is mighty to save. He is the Savior. He will not lose one lamb. Not one of his sheep will he lose. We take great comfort in that. And so let me say, yes, children can be saved, but they are to be saved the same way adults are saved. 
Sadly, gospel work among children often is a trivialization of the gospel. And to just uh, uh, Satan being characterized as some comic strip personality or a Muppet or sin is laughed at sometimes or uh, even some of the songs that we may use in, in the evangelization of children trivialize the, the, the deep work of sin and, and the work of the Savior. And this should never be. The work of the gospel should be just as serious among children and careful among children as it would be among adults. There must be among children or anyone who say genuine conviction of sin. And you and I know that only the Holy Spirit can bring about conviction. The wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. The Holy Spirit's regenerating work in producing a desire and a willingness to repent and be saved and to, to follow Jesus Christ will be evident among children just as it is among adults. Because they are in a Christian family or in a Christian community and rub shoulders with Christian people with Christian vocabulary and Christian doings and all of it is Christianized, there is the danger, the tendency to blend in or to have even though it's not overt, the idea that somehow they can become saved by osmosis or association. And you know that nothing could be further from the truth, but that is a danger and a subtlety in our dealing with children in a Christian community of that being the case. Like adults, children must be able to understand the gospel. They must understand it clearly before they can be saved. And I will not be able to get to the question or that phrase that some people refer to, uh, what is the age of accountability? When does a person become responsible for the Lord? What happens to a child before that time? The, the, the Bible addresses all of that, and we want to look at that carefully and give parents hope and assurance of dealing with their children. I think sometimes... In an evangelistic church where the gospel is freely and often preached that in the zeal of parents to desire their children to be saved and fearful that they will, will die or something will happen to them, that sometimes they try to manipulate or cause a salvation, uh, which you cannot do, but it produces a faulty or erroneous or a misunderstood conversion and not a genuine one, and then there are problems. Parents should teach the gospel. They should explain it and read it, read gospel passages, read all those portions of the Scripture that point to the Savior early and often uh, and in, to their children to have them under the regular and systematic preaching and the teaching of, of, the, of, the, of the gospel, how vitally important that is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where the Scripture says, Who is, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness, and not that preaching is foolish, but in the world's mind and the unsaved mind, this avenue, this venue in this technological day seems foolish, and it always has seemed foolish, but it pleased God, think of that, by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, this is the means that God has ordained, whether it's 101 at the mother's knee or at the Sunday school teacher's desk or in a public proclamation of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit works in the 
preaching, the proclamation, the describing, the explaining, line upon line, precept upon precept of the gospel. And this provides a fertile soil for the gospel seed to be implanted and bring forth the fruits of salvation in a child's life. Another tendency or a problem among evangelizing or working with children are sometimes children are scared understandably so these are weighty subjects that we're talking about but not necessarily under conviction this can be true of someone of any age you know they hear a message a fearful message of dying without repenting and believing on the lord or, or hell a message on hell and sometimes people are scared of dying or scared of death and and uh, that kind of fear alone is not the fear of the Lord that brings about, about repentance. You see, the fear of our sin and the despicableness of our sin and the, the fear of, of being lost before the Lord is a, is a serious matter, but just producing fear in a child's heart, which is not a hard thing to do, is not necessarily the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we must be careful. While we do not downplay the reality of hell, the, the horribleness of sin, we do not use fear tactics in dealing with children. The parents may tend to, to push them into a prayer and with leading questions. Our Sunday school teacher, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? Who doesn't? Or don't you want to be left, you don't want to be left behind when Jesus comes back, do you? Or you don't want to go to hell where the devil is and burn forever? Those kind of leading questions, leading children to a, a profession of faith or to go through something and, and, and if you want to we'll pray this prayer and then and telling them then you're saved children will respond to almost anything that, ch- that adults lead them to do they are easily led and until about six or seven or eight years of age there's that period of time and maybe even later children have a very difficult uh, time of discerning what is reality and what is make-believe and what is fairy tale. And while what we're talking about here is not fairy tales at all, we have to be careful that the susceptibility of children to believe almost anything will tell them that it's not based on that instead of a work of the Holy Spirit. What what are parents and children's workers to do? We must patiently and clearly and systematically teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. We must regularly pray that the Holy Spirit would open their hearts to an understanding of the things of Christ and produce genuine conviction and repentance in their heart. Always remember that it is God who saves. While He uses human instruments, He alone can save. Whether it's at 6 or 16 or 66, I went to the birthday party of Miss... Mom Sutton today, a hundred years old, sharp as a tack, could call you by name. And Brother Lamb, I've known you. And she went on down the line of how long she'd known me and her daughter teaching here all those years. And I just, uh, what an amazing, amazing thing. But uh, if a person came to Christ at a hundred or, or ten years of age, it's all the same. We should never push or coerce a confession from a child. When the work of genuine repentance is worked in the heart, confession will come. It is a natural result when the Holy Spirit is at work that repentance and confession will follow. That is a work of the Spirit. And a profession of faith will follow. Repentance brings its own confession. 
as the Lord opens the heart to the gospel call. Another pitfall for parents and and children's workers uh, is to reinforce a childhood prayer is evidence of salvation. The Holy Spirit, again, alone can bring salvation, and the Holy Spirit alone can give assurance. You must, uh, that, that work of assurance must be left to the Holy Spirit. That does not mean we don't give comforting scriptures. The, the work that we use, the tools of our work, are the scriptures alone. If a person is saved by the Word of God, and he is, and she is, then the Holy Spirit, who uses the sword of the Spirit, his tool in all of his work, is the Word of God. Why is it that we think we would lean on any other device other than the Word of God to bring about the Spirit's work? And so we can, some people act as if that's boring or not enough and and have to add to it, but it is the Word of God that brings about salvation. Often those raised in church will make a profession early. This is not uncommon, and it should not be uh, hindered. A child should not be held back. Only, though, to realize that they did not truly understand or that they had never really remembered a work of conviction, a Holy Spirit's work in the heart and true repentance, that they just went through the motions and later, under the influence of a systematic preaching of the gospel and the work of the Spirit, they come to true faith in Christ. And someone might say, what about that? To which I would answer, what about that? It is the Lord's work of bringing people to repentance. Let him do his work. Sometimes, instead of being helpers, we're stumbling blocks and act as if God can't do the very work that Jesus Christ came to do, to seek and to save that which was lost. As I've said, it is the Holy Spirit's work to convict. Jesus said, I'm going to leave. I will send another in my place. He will convict you of sin. He will lead you and guide you into all truth. In fact, the Holy Spirit will complete everything that Jesus set out to do and will do so into the end of the age. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, if they are led by the Spirit of God, those who are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That is the Holy Spirit's work, and He will do it. Well, the question arises, what can we do? Like the rich young ruler, what can we do to seal the deal, to make it real and genuine? All that God does is real and genuine. And in His time and in His way, He will bring these things to pass. Many people, I fear, are in the church today as tares. And it can be, I think, laid to the fault and to some degree because of misguided parents, misguided adult workers, either not sufficiently dealing with these children or giving them, on on one hand or on the other hand, giving them a false man-made assurance. Do you realize you're a sinner? Do you want to be saved? Pray this prayer. Did you mean that? Well, then you're saved. As if it's a signed, sealed deal. You do these four things and bam, it's, it's, it's there. And then you are, I've heard people argue with people. Yes, you're saved because blum, 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 and they go through it. Obviously, though, there was some doubt. Now, doubt comes from different reasons. Doubt can come from unconfessed sin. It can come from all manner of problems. But 
you don't dispel doubt by arguing with someone that they've done all these things and assuring them based on what they have done that they are saved. That's not the, the, the Holy Spirit's work. He uses the Word of God to comfort the heart and to give, you cannot give someone assurance of, of their salvation. The only true manifestation of genuine salvation is what? I'm afraid that a lot of adults don't know what that is. What is the proof of genuine repentance? The, the proof of salvation is the fruit of the Holy Spirit only and alone. Our Lord himself gave us these marks, these proofs of genuine conversion. It is always the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love and devotion to Christ. Obedience to the word of God. Love for others. This fruit that will be manifested in a truly repentant heart. What does our Lord in his word say about genuine salvation? It's always based not upon words or works, but fruit. Now there's a difference between works and fruit. Works is just that. But fruit is a genuine crop, if you will of the Holy Spirit's work in a person's life that will at some point be obvious. It will bring forth fruit. I have, as I tell you all the time, I have a pear tree, an apple tree, and another kind of tree in my yard. I can't remember what the third one is. It didn't do anything, so I don't know. It put it on leaves and everything else, but it never did give any fruit, so it's an unsaved tree, I'll tell you that. Now, the pear tree is saved. It gave forth bountiful pears this this, uh, year, and if I had not known exactly, sometimes they're, they're right in a row. The people who own the house before us, they planted it right in a row. One at about 20 feet is another one, about 20 feet is another one. And in the wintertime, I forget which one is which because the leaves are gone and there's no, no, there's no way to tell. And then even in the spring, leaves will come on and then the, the bud will come on. As some of you arborists could look at the blooms, I'm sure, and the leaves and say, oh, Brother Lamb, everybody who's anybody knows that's a pear tree. I don't know it until I see pears on it. And then I can say with all assurity, guess what we have in our yard? We have a pear tree. It is the only sure way. You know there are mock pear trees? We used to have two out front, and they were horrible. They gave everybody allergies and, and all kinds of problems. And finally they got so big that we chopped them down and, and uh, did away with them. But who want, what is good is a mock pear. They're beautiful. They do have a beautiful blooms and for a period of time. But mock pears, I want not mock pears, but real pears, don't you? And fruit is the only test of genuine salvation. If you're doubting your salvation tonight, I graciously tell you to examine your life for the Holy Spirit's fruit in your life. Our Lord said in Matthew chapter 7, and let me just say, the only way you can do that is to compare your confession, your profession by his own word. And the Holy Spirit addresses every area of this. There's a portion of scripture for you. What did our Lord say? Search the scriptures. Ransack the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. That's where you'll find the marks, the evidences of eternal life. Why is it that we who believe the Bible somehow, I fear, think that God cannot do His work apart from His Word. We become like those institutions and denominations who have a, a rigmarole of works, salvation, instead of the work of the Spirit by the Word of God and the grace of God. 
Our Lord said in Matthew 7, Enter ye in at the straight gate. Who is the gate? He is the gate. He is the only way to salvation. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads where? To destruction. And in fact, these portions of Scripture are, are wonderful portions of Scripture that illustrate themselves in dealing with children or anyone, for that matter, about their salvation. And many there are that go in there at the wide gate because straight is the gate, like the disciples said, who then can be saved? This is so narrow. You've painted such a narrow picture. Who can be saved? Right. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, eternal life. Few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets. They give a false salvation, a false conversion, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. You shall know them. How do you know a false prophet? By their fruits. It always gets on my absolute last nerves when I hear that. I hear this all the time. When people, they don't know anything else in the Bible, but they'll always say, no, you can't judge. You cannot judge. The Bible says judge not that you... And they always use that when someone makes a definitive statement about sin or about, it's as I'm preaching tonight. A lot of people would consider this judgmental preaching. Our Lord says, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns? No. Rhetorical question. Are figs of thistles? Again, no. The only way to get figs is where? From a fig tree. The only way to get grapes is from a grape vine. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A, a sinner has fruit, doesn't he? The fruits of sin. A saved person will bring forth fruits of righteousness. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. By their fruits, <clears throat> excuse me, you shall know them. How do you know someone who's genuine or false? By their fruits. It's very clear. By their fruits you shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out devils? Think These are religious works, aren't they? Prophesying, that's another word for preaching, teaching. Have we not preached? Have we not cast out devils? What a, what a thing to use as a means of proving that someone is are trying to get into heaven by casting out devils. And in thy name have we not done many wonderful or miraculous works? And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, he goes on to say. Let me say, parents, that marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to his church. And a marriage relationship, those of you who are in marriage, we're talking about children, you're married and you have children, the biggest, most influential tool that you have in the evangelizing of your children is your marriage. They are seeing every day a living object lesson, whether they realize it or not, of the Lord and his church and his love for his church and the response of the church to her Lord. And mothers and fathers like it or not, 
you are living that message out before these impressionable children in your words, in your actions, in your decisions. And so parents living out a godly life and living out the marriage vows as they should be and an example before their children is one of the most important things that parents can do in pointing their children to Christ. A rebellious wife to her husband who displays that in front of her children teaches her children to be rebellious and that sin is not so bad and that it can be cloaked in so-called righteousness and it nullifies that parent's influence when they speak of spiritual things and likewise a father who's not what he should be. Setting a consistent godly example is of utmost importance. Sincerity, earnestness, uh, the opposite of, of hypocrisy, confessing sin, saying I'm sorry, repenting of wrong and apologizing to one another, all those tender, Christ-like things are of utmost importance on impressionable minds. Parents being willing to quickly repent over sin and it, it, to admit wrong goes a long way in pointing impressionable children to the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Christ. Do you believe, let me ask you tonight, do you believe in the power of the gospel alone to save? Do you think that we have to prop up the gospel with antics and tricks and shenanigans? Paul said in Romans 1 verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. How could we be? The means of our salvation, yet sometimes the church acts like we're ashamed of the very means that God has given to us to bring people to Christ. Paul boldly says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Now I want you to listen to what Paul had to say. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God because it, the gospel itself, has the power to save. Don't ever forget that. When you're explaining it to a six-year-old or to a co-worker, the gospel has the power built within it as a, an acorn has within it an oak tree, right? The gospel has within it the converting power of salvation in it alone. If a child is to repent and to savingly believe in Christ then it will be through the proclamation of the message of the cross. We see there in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 15, and that, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise into salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then that portion of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul says, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. The, the message of the cross to those who are saved, it is the power of God. God has given this glorious message, and the wisdom of God is the most glorious thing in all the world. James 1 verse 18, Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth. Then First Peter 1 verse 23, being born again. How are we born again? Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, 
which liveth and abideth forever. We just read tonight, God has magnified His Word above His own name. This Word lives and abides forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the Word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the Word which by the Gospel is preached unto you. Children or anyone else for that matter will not be saved apart from the gospel. We must teach them the law of God. I'm amazed at how little Christians know or deal with the law of God. The moral law of God has never been rescinded. And it tells us, that is, Paul said, how would I know that I was a sinner or covetous or whatever without the law of God? This rich young ruler did not know that he knew the law up here, but he didn't realize, he didn't agree that he was covetous. Jesus was trying to show him by the law that he indeed was a sinner. So often Christian parents want moral children who, like robots, do the right thing and are a glorious reflection on them and their parenting, and they would rather just have moral children than regenerate children. But the only way to have more regenerate children is for the law of God to show them their need of Christ. And when a child is disobeyed, you show them what part of the law they have broken. No wonder the earliest memory verses should be, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise. When a child is lied... We ought to take them to the scripture and say, The law of God says, Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Bearing false witness is lying. Did you lie? You've broken the law of God. Not broken your heart. Little Johnny may not care whether he breaks your heart or not. And if you just have this relationship, Oh, mommy is upset and daddy's heart is broken. At some point, Junior's going to say, So what? But we must always direct them to the heart of God. To God the Father and to His law. Start at creation. We must teach them not only the law of God, but the grace of God, which, appear, which has appeared in the personal work of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Show them their need for a Savior and point them to Jesus Christ as the only one who can save them. Start at creation. Talk of the fall. What does the fall mean? Adam and Eve's cho- choosing to sin, God's judgment of sin at the flood. The life of Christ, His perfection, His death in our place, His glorious resurrection. And as I mentioned this morning, because I live, you shall live also. I am the resurrection and the life. Those verses can permeate a child's heart and lead to conversion. Do not downplay or minimize the claims of Christ or the demands of the gospel or the despicableness of sin, the necessity to be clear and and thorough in our teaching. Remember, parents, this is what the Lord expects you to do. You have brought immortal souls into this world. You have the most time with them. Who has the most influence over their children? Sadly, peers begin to at an early age. And our culture, but you parents don't ever give up your influence over your children's life. God has given them to you. And he expects you who know the gospel to tell the gospel to those who do not. You have the most time with Him. As you walk by the way, as you sit in the house, as you attend church and and funerals, 
We, at an early, we never shielded our children from funerals. How could we as a part of our life? They came along with us. We showed them the corpse. We showed them that it is appointed a man once to die and after this to judgment. It, it ought to be a sobering thing in the life of a child uh, to, to know that people die. Children die. Death is real. All these things the Lord has left here and will use His object lessons to point them to the reality of sin and death and the glories of the Savior. Discipline for wrongdoing is part of the disciplining. Is also a part of leading. Their soul is at stake. Their immortal soul is at stake. And it's a good opportunity to share the gospel and confession of sin and the sin of disobedience. Too often parents, as I've mentioned, desire good behavior instead of going through the intensive work of preparing the heart to turn to the Lord. The evidence of genuine salvation is the same in children as it is in adults. It is a transformed life. Now, granted, will a child have all the maturity and the fruit of an adult? No. But there will always be fruit in a regenerate heart. There will always be a transformed life. And that transformation, a new creature in Christ, is just as real in a child as it is in an adult. Be careful that you don't try to put adult fruit and behavior in a child's life. That's not, that a child's behavior is going to be childish. And yet, at the same time, there ought to be a tenderness toward the things of God and the gospel and the tenderness toward sin and a, and a repentance over sin, which ought to be true in any person's life who's been regenerate. And if that's not there, you keep praying and asking the Lord to show them their need for the Savior. And you can always pray. And in fact, prayer is the most important part in in living it out before them. But a transformed life, a continual repenting and believing, a desire to follow Christ, a sincerity in obeying His Word, a a love for and a fellowship with His people, all these things are proofs of genuine conversion in any life, at any stage, a desire to know and to do the will of God. Never underestimate a child's profession. Never treat it as unimportant. If a child comes and shows signs of wanting to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you carefully point them to the Savior. Don't underestimate that. Don't make that as if it's not anything. You allow the Lord to do His work. You should encourage any and all signs of spiritual work and growth. The seed is being sown and you're uh, fertilizing it. You might not say, yes, you are saved. You continually pray before them that the Lord will open their heart and show them salvation and show them the Savior. You nurture all those professions of faith and you can rest assured that God, who's more, a better father than you are, will lead his children to himself and draw them to salvation. Realize you cannot force or cause or coerce the salvation of your children. But you can pray, and you can lead, and you can teach and ask the Lord to do His sovereign work of His uh, Spirit in their lives. Well, there's much more to say here, and there's much more to analyze as we uh, think about this important work. We ask the Lord to give us light. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask You to do Your work in our midst and all of our lives. There may be someone who heard the work of the Spirit tonight and realized that they are outside of Christ, that they've not genuinely come to you in saving faith. We pray that the Spirit would show them their condition, 
and point them to the Savior. You're mighty to save. You're willing to save. You encourage your, your invitations to come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. We would tell them, Lord, to cry out to you just now. Oh, Lord, you said as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. And so we pray you do your work in our midst. Oh, Lord, save our children. We mourn at those we see leaving the faith as teenagers and in college days. Oh, Lord, bring them to yourself. Do a mighty work in every heart. Oh, I pray, Lord, that not one of our children will be lost, that your Holy Spirit would show them their need, and that they would repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.